Uh, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me back to the, the book of Ruth, and let's continue our study of that book. Um, we've, only, we've only covered, I've only done it two sermons. This is number three, so you hadn't missed much. I'm going to begin reading at verse six, and I'm going to read uh, through the first half of verse 19. So you follow as I read. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husband's? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, uh, that endures forever. Guys, what I've just read you, verses 6 through 19, is a conversation. It's a dialogue between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Actually, it's really only a dialogue between one of the daughters-in-law because one of them doesn't speak. Orpah doesn't speak. She just cries. (laughs) But the the narrator chooses to, to tell the story of this book via conversations. In this conversation that we've just read, uh, you find out a whole lot about Naomi and a whole lot about Ruth. Um, As for Naomi, she tells you a whole lot about the God that she knows, which, as it turns out, just happens to correspond with the God that is. As for Ruth... She tells you a whole lot about a converted heart. 
No. So those are my two points this morning. I want you to look um, at what Naomi tells us, and we learn from Naomi about God. And then I want you to look at what Ruth tells us about conversion. We'll start with, with Naomi. Guys, um, Naomi makes it very clear in this, uh, well, the whole chapter actually, but it, uh, in this text, she makes it very clear that she believes that all of her hardships were brought on or brought into her life, not by her sin, not by chance, not by Satan, but it was Yahweh who did it. She says in, in verse 13 that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Um, and, and interestingly, there, God doesn't step in and try to correct her. He doesn't try to say, oh, no, 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 you got that wrong. You know, it wasn't me. Uh, God doesn't try to defend himself or explain himself. It's, it's very clear that Naomi believes that, that God could have prevented all this, but he doesn't. But I also want you to notice something else in the text. I mean, a couple places. For instance, in verse 6, you'll, you'll notice there that she also believes that Yahweh is the one who has visited his people by giving them bread. She doesn't credit the weather. She doesn't say there's been some new farming techniques. She knows that bread, food, is a gift of God. Um, and then notice also in verses 8 and 9, when she's telling her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab, she says to them that Yahweh can bless you over in that land too. Now, guys, um, that's a concept about God that is foreign to, the, to this period. Ancients believed that gods were regionalized. And that, that you were to worship a certain God when in a certain country. Uh, each, each region had its own God, you know, and you kind of had to make good with him. But even, I mean, very, I mean, rather obviously, you can see certain things that Naomi believes about God. First of all, she doesn't believe that he's a regional God. That there's no national boundaries to this God. You know, the name Abraham Kuyper might not ring a bell with you, but Abraham Kuyper said something that gets quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted, and, and I'm going to quote it too. Um, uh, Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> not a square inch. Not a square inch anywhere. Naomi believed that. She believed that Yahweh was the Lord of the whole earth, not just Judah. Um, she, she doesn't view him as having any national boundaries like, like, like the gods of Moab, like Chemosh, the god of Moab. The other thing that you see, and just rather clearly, I think, is that she considers that everything, that everything does God's bidding. Um, weather, um, pain, prosperity, um, life, death, 
all of it does as God says it is to do. You know, um, Ruth is committed to this simple truth. God reigns. You know, I said last week, I said that there's really only two messages in the Bible. God reigns and God saves. Naomi, Naomi knows this first message. She knows that God reigns. And, and, and that's a theme, ladies and gentlemen, that is found all throughout the Bible. Particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 93, Psalm 115. Psalm 99 begins this way. It says, Yahweh reigns. That's all it says. I, I, heard, a, I heard a man preach a 45-minute sermon on those two words one night. Yahweh reigns. So, this God that has stretched out his hand against me is the God that Naomi believes reigns. Now, there's one other thing that, that I think Naomi tells us about God, but it's not quite as observable, not as, not as easily found in the text. Let me explain. Um, she's got two daughters-in-law. Neither one has children, and they are Moabites. Now, guys, that's huge problems because the Moabites were kind of the, the age-old natural em- enemies of Israel. I, I think I told you three weeks ago that Moab was the, the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. But from there, the story just continues to go downhill. Um, Israel and Moab never got along, and it started when Israel was coming out of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land, and they wanted to go through Moab to get to the promised land. And Moab said, no, you can't come through here. The king, his name was Barak, he called out his armed troops and stopped them from going straight through Moab to the promised land. Um, and then he hires a sorcerer by the name of Balaam. You remember the donkey that talked? That was Balaam's donkey. He hires Balaam to come curse Israel. That didn't work. And so the one strategy that does work is that Moabite women seduce Hebrew men, which creates this ugly scene in Numbers chapter 25, where Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron, Phineas takes a, 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 a spear, goes into a tent, and thrust this spear through a man and woman. Um, the point of all that, ladies and gentlemen, is these are Moabite women. And they're going to return to Israel. And it's highly unlikely, girls, that you're going to find a husband in Israel. There are no husbands in Israel for Moabites. You're, you're better off staying right where you are. Go home. My dreams of happiness are over. Let's face the facts. I'm as good as dead. So, um, so Naomi, um, is giving up her one tangible resource. Those two girls. She's sending them back to their, to Moab because Jews hate Moabites. They're, Moabites are racial outsiders and there's not going to be husbands over here for you. So with their interest in mind, she sends them back. It's a huge sacrifice, guys. 
At first, the two girls balk, but Orpah eventually returns to Moab, and she's never heard of again. But she did the sensible thing. But I I, I say all of that, guys, because it, it leads you up to verse 13. Because it's where she says, it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is an angry woman. This is a bitter woman. Um, God is my enemy. You never see any hint that she feels like lady luck or chance. The, the reason I make this point, guys, is that this conviction of Naomi's is one of the underlying themes of this entire book. What Naomi is communicating, guys, is that God rules in the affairs of men, both the good and the bad. And the, the knowledge that God rules in the good and the bad, and I've got bad... That makes me angry. And that's what you're seeing in verse 13, an angry woman. And she's angry because she knows God reigns. And because he reigns and I've got this, I'm angry at him. Now, gang, this is, this is, this is pretty important. Because in the midst of your difficulty, I would bet you a steak dinner someplace that you're going to feel the same thing. You know, one of my favorite stories of somebody being angry with God is, is found in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is one of my favorites, and Jeremiah has been, he's been ministering in Israel for 23 years. 23 years. That's a long time. I've been at Gracie Van for 23 years. And, and Jeremiah looks at Israel and sees them continuing to battle him. And he looks up at God and he says, God, you lied to me. Can you imagine saying that to God? You lied to me. And I've had it. I quit. I don't want any more of this. I'm turning in my prophet's card and you can get yourself another boy. Because I'm done. Of course, before the text closes, Jeremiah has uh, changed his, his tune. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that's a man who's angry at God. Naomi is angry at God. And, 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 and interestingly, they're both still talking to him, not about him. They're, spo- they're both still talking to his face, not behind his back. There's a sense in which, ladies and gentlemen, that this anger that you see in this woman is a proof that she does believe in God. Because the only place she can take her anger is straight to him. And my dear brother and sister in Christ, your anger is not going to knock God off his throne And I can tell you that before it's all over, there's going to be some instances where you're going to think, he's my enemy. He's he's against me. And you're going to find yourself as angry as Naomi. 
What do you do then? I'm, guys, I'm not trying to advocate being angry with God. But I am saying, do you believe in a God with whom you can be angry? Because in a lot of ways, that just proves that you believe in him. At no point do you see Naomi saying, well, because of my pain, I'm done with that God. I don't think he exists. She never says that. What she does do is take her anger and she addresses it to the only place where she knows it can be heard. Just like ours has got to be, guys. Yeah, there's going to be times. There are going to be times, my friends, when you're going to think just like this. You're going to think the Lord has gone out against me. Here's a woman that believed that God reigns. And that God that reigns has gone out against me. Now, if you're honest, that's going to produce anger, bitterness. But guys, that anger is not, I mean, I'm not trying to applaud it. I'm just saying that it can be dealt with, with a God who reigns like this God reigns. I take my anger and I take it into his presence and I say, I, 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 I don't understand this. And in, and in that, in that confrontation, even that, ladies and gentlemen, proves that Naomi is committed to this God who is the God who sends bread. He's the God who sends pain. He's the God who sends the weather. He's the God who is in charge. So in the midst of my struggle, your anger um, is not applaudable, but it doesn't mean you're an unbeliever either. Now, let me, let me talk about Ruth and what she teaches us about conversion. Guys, um, these two girls, Ruth and Orpah, are faced with a really a crisis of a decision. Um, and um, here's, here's their... Here, here's their, here's their choices. Here's their choice as, as they see their choices. Okay. I can go back to Moab and, um, I'll probably get a husband and have some children, but I'm stuck with Chemosh, the God of the Moabites. Or I can, um, I can go to Israel. I'll be hated. I'll be a a religious and a racial outsider. Um, No husband, no children. But I'll have Yahweh. (laughs) What a gospel presentation. Okay, ladies, here's your choice. Come to, um, come to, to, to Yahweh and he'll give you absolutely nothing but pain. Or you can go back over there. You won't have Yahweh, but you can have your of your family life. (laughs) Orpah chooses option number one. She chooses a broad road. She's like pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. She heads back to the city of destruction. But the text says in verse 14, 
But Ruth clung. (laughs) What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that verses 14 through 18 is the story of a conversion. This is, a, this is an immigrant who is about to plunge into a world of the unknown. She's leaving behind everything familiar. She is, she is cutting off all ties to her entire social network. But in the face of all that, she says, You're God. I want to be my God. You know, guys, um, you're not supposed to say that in this culture. You're not supposed to say that one God is better than the other God. You're not supposed to talk to people about, you need to take my God instead of your God because your God is not good. You're not supposed to do that. Um, one, of the, one of the things that the, the, the modern 21st century Western man hates about Christianity is that we try to convert people. But they try to convert people as well. What they tell us is that my view of spiritual reality is better than your view of spiritual reality. You need to, you need to chuck yours and adopt mine. Well, Ruth says, I, I don't want my God. I want the God that I've heard about who parted the Red Sea and, and gave man it is. I want that God. You know, um, I, I get mildly amused when, when people use this passage. In a wedding. You've ever heard that? Whither thou goest, I will follow. You do know, don't you, that this is a daughter-in-law spoken to a mother-in-law. It's not a bride spoken to a groom. But more importantly, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the language of marital commitment. It is the language of a conversion. Naomi tries to talk her out of it. But Ruth is determined, and she's, she's blurting out these thoughts in verse 16. And, and then finally she comes to verse 17, and she says, Yahweh, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Yahweh. That, that's the name, ladies and gentlemen, that is the name known as a covenantal relating, relationship name. I'm coming with you, Naomi. Because I belong to the same God that you belong to. I want your God. You you know the one that you mentioned in verse 13? The one that you're angry with? Um, Ruth already knows that there's a price to pay if she follows this God. She's seen it in Naomi. But ladies and gentlemen... She is convinced that Chemosh offers her nothing. You know, Wednesday night, I, 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 at the Bible study on Wednesday night, I, I, um, I told a story. Um, and I, I prefaced the story by saying to people, I said, well, you know, I've told this story a whole lot. And I, I've, I've just... You know, I know you've heard me tell this story before and, uh, you know, but I'm going to tell it one more time. I got through telling the story and people said, I've never heard that story before. We've never heard that story before. I never heard you tell that story before. And so I'm going to tell it again. It's a, it's a story about a caterpillar. His name is Stripes. And Stripes always wanted to be a somebody. 
And he got married and settled down a little bit, but he always had this, this inner urge to be a somebody. So he went to his wife and he explained that and she, she agreed and she understood. And one day Stripes was walking outside and he noticed off in the distance this huge mound. He couldn't deter, te- you know, figure out exactly what it was, but there was this huge mound off in the distance. And he came back and told his wife and he says, I got to go check that out. She packed a bag for him and off he went. And so as, as Stripes is getting closer and closer to the mound, he realized that there's, there's just dozens, there's scores of, of caterpillars that are, that are coming from all directions headed to the same mound. So that got him all excited. So he kind of picked up the pace and started walking a little bit faster. He gets closer to the mound and he realizes that it's a mound of caterpillars. And they're all crawling on each other trying to get to the top. And so Stripes really didn't know exactly what that was all about, but he decided, well, you know, it looks like they're thinking it's important. I better get involved. So he starts climbing up the, up the mound and, 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 and on his way up, he, he recognized that he had to be kind of rude to some people. He had to kind of elbow his way and kind of step on some people to get on the, you know, up in front of them. Then all of a sudden there was this huge shaking of the mound and all these little caterpillar bodies were flung every, all the way down to the ground and you could hear this sound of splat, splat, splat everywhere. And, and, and Stripes thought that was very sad, but, but it did leave some more room for him towards the top. And so he kept climbing and he almost, he was almost at the top and he heard somebody, he heard somebody whisper rather loudly, There's nothing up here. And then somebody else said, Shut up, you fool. We're up here. That's what's up here. You know, ladies and gentlemen, about three or four years ago, a young woman by the name of Miley Cyrus, who, bless her heart, needs somebody to love her. But she had a hit tune. And, and you know what the name of the, 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 the song was, don't you? The Climb. Um, it ain't about how fast you get there. It ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. We got to get in the climb. Ruth seemed to understand there's nothing up there. You know, I, I told that story Wednesday, and, I, and the next day I got an email. And, and I, I want to read you. It was from a young man who was in the audience that night. And um, he, he said this. I'm not going to read all of this, but it was quite good, I thought. He said, indeed, the marketing mentality is strong at the top. And that is what lures, even recruits, all of us caterpillars to the climb. It comes in the form of luxury cars and fancy watches and $1,000 handbags. It's the exclusive golf club logo as a subtle reminder that you don't have what they have. And the way to get it is to climb. It comes in the form of a perceived life of ease that makes those at the bottom or middle climb harder. We use words like driven and successful to describe wealthy people. We adorn ourselves with the badges and logos that that show the world our status. We tell ourselves that God will take care of our needs, then spend all of our time trying to take care of our wants. We champion the guy who never sees his kids 
As long as he can be a good provider and his wife gets to play a lot of tennis. I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm as wormy as all of us. I just don't make as much money as some so it doesn't show as badly on the outside. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing up there. And Ruth knew it. I don't want my God. I, I, I want your God. Yeah, I know the one that you're angry with. I know he's the one that stretched out his army, but I I want that God because Chemosh offers nothing. You know, guys, as I studied this passage, I, I wondered how, what in the world about Naomi did she see that attracted her to, to Naomi's God? Because she's bitter. Naomi is angry. What was it? And I think it was this. Naomi said, you girls go on back over there. The only tangible means of support she had was those two girls and she gave them up because she forfeited her her own uh, future well-being so that they could have a life. Maybe get a husband, have some kids. And Ruth said, I've never been loved like that. Yeah, I, I, I see what, what Yahweh has done. But if I can be related to a God who helps me love like that, who has somebody else's interest in heart besides my, their own, I want to be a part of that God. Uh, Naomi, just look at the way that you've loved me. You loved me. You loved me before your God was my God. I watched you, Naomi, give up what little hope you had so that I could have a life. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, when non-Christians see in us something that they don't have inside themselves, they want to know where did it come from? Is there anything about me that whets the appetite of a non-believer to say, I don't know where you got that, but that's what I want to That's what you're seeing in this story in the book known as Ruth. I watch a woman deal with tragedy and yet she's still talking to this God. She's a God who loved me when, before I ever, ever loved her God. And if God can create people who can love like that. I want that God. You know, guys, um, one of the most intriguing um, conversion stories I've ever, I've ever heard was a, was a story about, in fact, I, I think I've told you about this guy before too. His name was William Cooper. William Cooper, um, Dealt with depression most of his life. Tried to kill himself four or five times. Failed every time. 
he, in the providence of God, meets a guy by the name of John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. The Lord uses John Newton to bring William Cooper to faith in Christ. But he continues to struggle the rest of his life with depression. But in that course of after having become a Christian, he began to write hymns that are found in our hymn book. <laughs> you know what these are. This is a hymn book. Um, but um, one of the hymns that he writes, we don't sing around here. Um, and, but you've heard of it. I bet you kind of, it, it, it's a, the hymn is entitled, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Um, I want to read you just two stanzas. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Listen. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the message of this entire book of Ruth. Behind a smiling providence, a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the first hint of someone sensing that there may be a smile on his face is the conversion of Ruth. Oh. Oh. I see. Aslan is on the move. You remember who Aslan is, don't you? Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure. And Aslan is on the move. And the first whisper that you get that he is on the move is when a Moabite woman says, I don't want that God. I want your God. Your God will be my God. And because your God is my God, your people will be my people. And Yahweh When she mentions that name, it is as if she says, in essence, I am no longer a Moabite. I'm converting.
Guys, um, before this God can be your God, your other life has got to go. Um, your, um, your life in Moab, um, th- that's got to go. Moab has got to be left behind. And you head off into another direction. You know, guys, um, when I became a Christian, that I was 22 in 1970. I didn't know how really, didn't understand a lot about what had happened to me. But one of the things that I used, one of the things I used to say to try to express it, it was like I was on a path headed in a direction and God knocked me down. He picked me up. He brushed me off. He turned me around. And I headed off into an entirely different direction. That's what Ruth did. By the way, this um, Cooper guy, he wrote several hymns. About the only two that were known that are known is the one I just mentioned, and one more. We don't sing the one that I read from, but we do sing this one. William Cooper wrote this one too. It goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ruth plunged into that flood. Have you? Our Father, I I do pray that you will use uh, this story to remind us of the things that are that are being taught us. the things that we're supposed to learn about you and the things that believers must wrestle with and things that sometimes sometimes have a bitter taste but oh how sweet is the flower would you would you would you remind your people that behind that frowning providence there is hiding there a smiling face. But also, Father, would you, would you teach all of us, particularly those who have not yet embraced the Savior, would you cause them to see the great beauty of this God, our God, the God, the one who reigns and the one who saves And the way that he saves is through Christ and him crucified. Would you you portray Jesus Christ in all of his loveliness to every set of eyes? 
every set of ears, every heart that occupy this room. We, uh, we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.